Welcome to the Phoenix Cast, a podcast about cybersecurity, technology, and innovation issues in the military. We are your hosts, John, Rich, and Kyle. Rich and I are U.S. Marines, and the opinions expressed on the cast are those of the hosts, not official military policy. And the opinions I express are my own, not those of my employer or any other business I am associated with. For today's episode, we've got a special guest, Nick. Thanks for coming on the cast. Can you give us a yep, quick introduction? Hi, intro? everyone. Uh, my name is Nick Russo. Uh, like some of the hosts on the show, I also served in the uh, Marine Corps. Um, we can talk maybe more about that in a little while, but uh, these days I work for Cisco. I'm pretty well known as an author, uh, a network guy, an automations guy, and uh, a technical trainer. So I think John reached out to me because he wanted to talk through a little bit about my journey from the military to ultimately ending up doing a lot of network automation and talk a little bit about how we can translate some of those skills or bring those skills into the military environment. Absolutely. And, and, and again, Nick, thank you so much for joining us. And yeah, anybody who's listened to this podcast knows that uh, this is the episode I have been waiting for. Uh, automation, especially network automation, near and dear to my heart. Uh, so, and, and we also have got a kind of interesting one here. We have had uh, 0602, which is communication officers, on here before. Um, however, Nick would be the first one to take this path. So, uh, and, and normally we, we've told people before we have, you know, former 0651s, which were enlisted communicators or 0650s, which are your chief warrant officers. Uh, but this is the first time we've had an 0602 come on and kind of like branch from the military and go from like very generalist to like, yeah, maybe you can pick the router off uh, the shelf to pretty, I, I will say anybody who's been on the internet knows your technology gets pretty nerdy pretty quickly. So can you talk to us just what the journey looked like from generalist to hyper-focused automator? Yeah, I think so. So going back kind of to the beginning, when I left high school, I, I joined the Marine Corps initially as an infantryman. So really nothing to do with communications at that point. I was an assault man. I carried a, a rocket launcher and we shot at tanks and buildings and things like that. I made it to corporal after a couple of years, like most people did at the time. Once I finished college, of course, I was in the reserves at the time, uh, not on active duty. When I finished college in 2008, I got commissioned. And at the basic school, I picked up the communications MOS, which was my first choice. I picked it because I graduated with a computer science degree and I did pretty well in school. I liked to write code uh, and I wanted to stay technical in the military. And again, for those in the Marine Corps, sometimes that can be difficult because Marine Corps is, is very much a gun club. Um, we fight, we go first, we do that kind of hardcore stuff where there's not nearly as much uh, technology, you know, compared to like the Air Force or the Navy to, to kind of contrast. So I, I enjoy being in communications, but I also wanted to stay true to my infantry roots because as much as that life was physically difficult, I really enjoyed it. So I went to 3-2, that's 3rd Battalion, 2nd Marines, um, which is an infantry battalion. I served as the S-6 there. I uh, did that for a few years. I went to Haiti for that big earthquake in January 2010 with the 2-2 MU. Uh, next year, I went to Afghanistan for uh, an eight-month OEF deployment. Got out uh, right before Christmas of 2011. And during that whole time, uh, I was kind of a traditional uh, communications officer. My role was primarily about leadership, uh, assets, and being just technical enough to provide some oversight as to the overall operations and, and provide advice to the battalion operations officer and, and coordinate among the staff sections. I was not configuring routers at the time. Uh, I didn't know how to do IP subnetting. There was a lot that I just wasn't very strong with. Um, what I had learned in communication school was enough for me to survive. But when it came to actually doing the hardcore work that I do today, I was nowhere near it. 
Uh, fortunately, I had some really excellent uh, staff NCOs that were able to, to pull that weight. When I got out, though, in, let's see, it was right before Christmas 2011, I immediately, you know, like a lot of people do, I picked up a CCNA book, started to study. Um, I started working for a company called Harris. They make uh, military radios up in upstate New York, Rochester, where I'm from. Worked there for a few years. And at this time, I got really into kind of traditional networking. I hadn't been doing a lot of automation. I wasn't really putting my programming skills to the test either. And that's okay. Uh, when I joined Cisco a few years later, and I had some other jobs in between as, a, as an army contractor, it's really not very significant, so I won't get into detail. But when I joined Cisco in 2016, that's when I started to really look at this and say, what are the trends in the industry? What do I need to keep doing to stay relevant? Uh, and that's right around the time I started to dig into things like uh, cloud, automation work, you know, all the other fancy buzzwords that are out today. So long story short, I went from being an infantryman, just having graduated high school, to starting on an automation journey about three or four years ago uh, to where I am today. Yeah, and I don't know if if there is such a thing anymore as a traditional path or, or what you expect to look like, but I, I think that definitely uh, does not follow what at least I, I track in my head as uh, as what you would expect uh, the normal 0602 journey to do. Uh, and the other thing I definitely need to call out is I, I wonder who your comp school instructors were are because, you know, obviously they should have prepared you much, much more than uh, than not knowing IP subnetting. Rich, your response. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thanks, I, I will say this hey, if we can't have fun with this, what's the point? Yeah, I, I will say this much. Um, so for those, you know, for, for our listeners, so I, I had the opportunity to actually teach at the, the Marine Corps Communication School for a while. Um, Nick happened to come through there when I was an instructor. And I, I phrase it that way because Nick came to the school, as you heard him mention, with a wicked amount of knowledge already coming through, uh, you know, when he was in the reserve component and then going through and getting his computer science degree. Um, so when he was at the school, I mean, it was just a joy to have him there. Um, but, you know, these are one of the, or Nick is, is kind of one of the ninjas that we bring on this show to kind of show the, the art and the realm of the possible, right? So coming from his, you know, enlisted infantry background and then going to a technical MOS school, which, which showed him how to apply his skills, I think, a little bit in the Marine Corps. And he mentioned he was kind of bad at IP subnetting. I think that's just because he didn't have experience. It wasn't that he was bad at it. Um, uh, and then, you know, getting some technical resources in the personnel that he got when he, uh, you know, when he went to the infantry battalion where he was in 0602, a communications officer, he, you know, uh, the type of guy uh, or Marine in general that just, just knocked it out of the park, right? And had a high op tempo. So it was like, hey, I served my country, did awesome stuff. And, and then went back, got hired by Harris, uh, and then served the Marine Corps and the Army again. And then, you know, went over to Cisco. And now we're talking to him here. So um, I cannot claim any credit in, in Nick's uh, education. Uh, you know, although I'll turn it over to Nick and say, you know, one, it's great to hear your voice, brother. Um, it's been a while uh, since we've you know, even had the opportunity to talk together. So thanks for coming on the show. And uh, yeah, you know, if you wouldn't mind, uh, please grade us at the, at the communication school. Did, did we do anything for you? Um, and, uh, you know, how did you use that skills when you get back out to the fleet? And does, does anything re remain relevant now, uh, you know, in your career at Cisco? Over to you. Yeah, you know, it's funny. This is like that TV show when you're like talking to someone, you don't realize who it is until like 30 seconds after you say something. 
so for for the listeners out there yeah rich was one of the instructors at the school um and i still remember most of their names uh, at least i remember their last names and they were all captains at the time um zamora roman larson i think there were Falavine. those are the four i can remember and, and vac of course but um i thought the school was great um i i was a pretty good performer there uh, i enjoyed it you know i was if, if I'm being honest, I think I was one of few people overall who actually chose communications as their first choice. Um, I had two other roommates. Uh, they were both lieutenants at the time. One of them's last name was Russell and one was Yeagle. Um, Yeagle was, uh, they were all great officers, by the way, and some of them are still in today. Um, but of that group, uh, one of us, I won't say who, uh, did not choose that as his first MOS. And he still made the best of it and all, but I actually wanted to be there. I really enjoyed it. I felt like the school was pretty good for what it was. Um, you know, I, I used those skills pretty effectively in my unit. I think the thing is that they teach you a lot of technical skills so that you understand what's going on. But of course, there's, you know, when you're in command of 60 people, which is generally true when you go to an infantry unit, um, there's a whole slew of other issues that are just part of a general leadership thing. And most of that comes from like the basic school and just being an adult in general. Uh, but overall, I thought the school was good. Um, I guess I, I will put my foot in my mouth a little bit and say they definitely taught a lot of IP subnetting. But, uh, you know, a year later in Afghanistan, uh, I was I definitely wasn't the one doing it. Um, but, yeah, it was a good school overall. I think I think the Marine Corps did a pretty good job with it. And I will say on the record uh, that spending so much time working with the Army, I'd say that whatever they whatever they were getting taught was was not up to par with what I learned. Uh, again, that could just be the, the people I was talking to, but. Um, I felt like the school was pretty good. So just, to, just right. to set the record straight there. So so I want to make sure, John, you've got it out of your system to criticize the schoolhouse a little bit. Rich, you got it out of your system to defend the schoolhouse. And Nick, you've done a fabulous job of giving your perspective and saying that the Marines were better than the Army at something, which Marines, we all love to hear. So, uh... and, for, and for the <laughs> listeners, that was not scripted. Uh, thank you for resetting us, Kyle. And and, and Rich, thank you for allowing Absolutely. Uh, yourself to be the butt of this joke. I enjoyed it immensely. No, um, I, I got to say this before we move on. I mean, after the uh, that Navy took yesterday from Army at the collegiate football level, I think that was an appropriate comment we, from Nick. We needed over. this. We needed this. Yeah. All thank right. You. I'm going to automate us yeah. towards so the next topic. we're automating on. So, uh, Nick, one of the things that Kyle mentioned, and, and it definitely resonated with me, this was shows and shows ago, is, you know, sometimes you have that problem and years and years later, you come back and you're like, oh my God, I wish I knew blank uh, at the time I had this problem because that would have been the much better answer to, to what my issue was. So uh, if you could kind of give me your why of automation, because obviously you're very passionate about this, not just about doing it, but, sh but sharing what you've learned with others. Uh, so that they can learn. Do you have uh, a why? And is there any part of the, you know, years later that maybe you thought, oh, I wish in my military experience, I would known about this, uh, any of that kind of stuff? Yeah, I think, I think the key thing to answering like, what, how did you get started? Or why did you do it? It has to be born from some real life operational need. Like, for example, uh, in it was April 2017. And in the previous Thanksgiving timeframe. So it was around November 16, December 16, about four years ago. I'd worked with two other engineers to develop a new kind of global uh, ISP network for the army. And we had built the design and we had started to roll it out. And by April timeframe, I think we had maybe five sites online. So not exactly large. 
The problem, though, is that every time a new site went online, I would have to open up a text file, hand jam some changes, add some new IPs, update a spreadsheet. You know, these are all pretty monotonous, easily repeatable tasks. So the obvious choice there was either I can keep doing this and keep getting phone calls all through the day to build these new sites and troubleshoot problems, or I can find a way to automate this process. And that's one of the first things I did. So it was just as simple as I'm going to take this template. I'm going to variableize things like IPs and host names and whatever. I'm going to run my script. I'm going to get some outputs. And then with confidence, I can hand out these config files. Very basic, simple way to start and definitely not anything new. I mean, people have been doing this for decades. Once we started to have more sites online, my issues turned from how do I configure devices initially to how can I manage them? When I needed to log into all the devices to make sure that some security holes were plugged or I needed to enable or disable DNS on all the devices or I needed to just collect health from them and make sure their BGP sessions were up or whatever, that was another great candidate for automation because at this point I had network connectivity to those new sites. I could log in from my uh, automation machine and in our environment we started with Ansible for a couple of reasons we can talk about later. And having the capability to do that just gave me the power to do things like easily collecting information and making changes in a scalable way. Now, the exact implementation, uh, I like most people, I started off in a very crude kind of simple way, you know, go to Stack Overflow and copy kind of approach uh, to a couple of years later. Um, that say, you know, I'd say probably early 2018 within about nine months, I was pretty strong and I was able to develop some pretty advanced tools to help this network grow. Uh, and I'd say the time I left that customer, which was, mm, I think May of last year. So about a year and a half ago, uh, they were up to about a hundred sites, 150 sites. It was pretty, pretty sizable or 150 devices, maybe 80 sites or something. It was, it was big enough to the point where there was no way that you were going to manage it manually with any kind of uh, effectiveness. So I want to double click on a couple things that you just mentioned, Nick, because I, I deal with automation really regularly. I mean, not at the scale that you are, but I always hear sort of the the general argument against automation is like, but the site is so small, it would take so much longer to automate this than to just do it. And when you talk about that story that you just shared, it was, you know, you, you set up a couple sites and then it grew to over a hundred. Like that, that is the quintessential like argument and benefit of automation and why you should do it always. But like, are, have you experienced that argument against it? And have you ever like fought personally against that too? Um, I haven't seen that argument a whole lot because most of the problems that require my involvement or most of the problems that I just happen to stumble across, they tend to be problems involving scale at some extent. Um, what you've just said is something I have heard from other people. Um, it's kind of a, a common trope that comes across the airwaves here and then. Uh, but for me personally, I haven't seen it a whole lot. And I think the reason for that is just, like I said, when you're building a global ISP network, the question of scale, it's not even a question of scale, like it's a certainty. And a lot of the other problems, you know, working in army tactical where you have, you know, a, a brigade sized army network with, you know, tens of nodes spread out. And then when we start to talk about division level networks and huge exercises, again, the question of scale is moot. So I haven't seen that specific problem. Um, the problem that I run into more, and I gave a talk about this, uh, kind of a talk about this a year and a half ago at Interop, where I talked about just some of the the bureaucratic forces that tend to resist it. So it's less about a, this is, you know, it's not worth automating because I only need to make two changes, but it's more of, you know, a question of uh, protecting people's roles, protecting their status, protecting their jobs. I don't want to turn this into a gripe session, so I'm not going to get too much into that, but especially when you're working in 
federal organizations, including the DOD, you tend to run into those kind of barriers first, in my experience, before you run into uh, barriers of we don't need scale, if that makes sense. Yeah. And taking your uh, example, since you said you mentioned the army and you mentioned kind of the scale, um, can you think back either to your time in the Marine Corps or time supporting the army where you you just felt like automation was such an obvious answer or, or something maybe we should consider or, or those listening? Yeah, I think I, I think some of the obvious things, at least in the military in general, are automating things like, you know, configuration backups, configuration changes, just configuration management in general. I think that makes sense for just about any organization that may not even be specific to the military. You think about tactical sites, especially where you've got maybe, you know, uh, let's just use the army as a simple example. You've got a brigade deployed in the field. Individual battalions have their uh, communication systems set up on the network. Uh, Companies have their systems set up on the network and you've got this large you know, let's see, let's say there's five battalions in a brigade and every battalion has three companies. So what's that 15 companies total, plus the uh, battalion networks, plus a brigade network, a main and attack, you're well over 20 sites at this point, at least not not counting any other patrol bases or retrans type sites or whatever. So you're, you're over 20 sites at this point. And when you're trying to do things like, hey, we've, we've, um, identified this attacker at certain addresses or ports, or we've identified firewall rule changes that need to go out at all the sites, or we've, you know, we need to change frequencies on these, uh, on this transmission equipment due to interference with, uh, either enemy action, or maybe there's a regulatory body, you know, if we're doing an exercise in the United States, the FCC tends to control what the spectrum is going to look like on, on license bands. So there's a lot of reasons why you might want to synchronize those changes. I think we've all been in a situation as professional communicators where we're sitting at one end of a radio link or a SATCOM link, and we're like, if we're ne- if, if we're lucky, we're talking on cell phones trying to coordinate it. But if we're in the in the field, we're talking over order wire or tactical radios trying to troubleshoot why a link isn't coming up, and that's a pretty miserable thing to do. And having an automated process to do that and not have to go through these, you know punching in with your fingers from a cut sheet, there's an enormous advantage there. Uh, But I mean, think about it from a commander's perspective. Uh, Commanders want to be able to pick up, move quickly, uh, continue the attack, maneuver, you know, order fires on targets, things that are, you know, our job is to enable those things. And the faster we can enable communications, it enables commanders to react more rapidly to, um, to those kinds of maneuver type warfare things that that are, it's our job to do. Now, again, I'm focusing on the maneuver warfare because that's where I served as a as a professional communicator. Um, there are bigger box communication units that are a little more strategic in their focus, but I think the idea remains the same. Commanders aren't necessarily interested in communication specifically. They just want it to work. And the better it works, the more effective the overall unit will be. Yeah, and I can just say it, it has been a little while since uh, you know Nick has been uh, with the Marines or in the field, uh, but I can, without going into specifics, I can say that his examples and what he just said uh, 100% resonates, uh, e- even in, in today's uh, look. So, John, I'll just say um, the things Nick talked about, I'll just double click on that to use Kyle's phrase and just say that's timeless stuff, right? Commanders needing information now, not caring what the technology is. And uh, then, you know, the folks that are actually building those networks or setting up that infrastructure to make that, um, you know, signal flow work, uh, ridiculously need the ability to do it at a rate or at a speed that shouldn't be limited by human 
dexterity, right? Like typing in things, right, with their fingers or pushing buttons on a big black box. But uh, what I was going to comment on, and I think it's, it's relevant for the group <clears throat> is, and for our audience is, you know, so Nick mentioned um, earlier in, in the cast, he talked about like having a real world problem to apply a solution to for an automation outcome, right? Or, um, you know, uh, a delivery uh, of some sort of value, right? And I think that's super key to just pause for a second and hit on, because a lot of folks talk about this um, almost philosophically, um, or, you know, they, they pull things from the ether and they're like, yeah, we, automation is great. It's kind of like when you hear people say, you know, um, uh, AI, right? Uh, so my point here is that you actually do have to have a problem to solve. And I think that's what uh, I'd like to kind of get across to the listeners is, you know, when you hear things like automation or you hear things like machine learning, which support, you know, artificial intelligence, you got to start with a problem. And I really want to hit on that point that that Nick brought up uh, because it's really important. And the reason I say that is in my experience, both in the public and private sector, I've had a lot of leaders that knew what they were talking about. I've had, like, so let me back up. I've had a lot of really good leaders um, at what I would consider like a senior vice president level that grew up as engineers. So they knew from the ground up, this is how problems get solved, right? And the number one thing that they would tell me is not, it's not the challenging nature of the problem. It's not the technical skills that you would apply to it, but it's that you actually have a problem to solve. And there's somebody passionate enough about solving that problem that they take the first step towards automation, uh, and the second thing I'll say, uh, and then turn it back over to the group to, to continue the conversation here, because this is awesome, is, you know, if you're doing something more than once, it's ripe for automation, right? Like, don't confuse yourself or don't think like, hey, is this something I need to automate? If you are doing the same task once or twice or three times, that is ripe for automation. And everything you can do, especially on the military side of the house, to apply technical solutions like we'll, we'll probably get into here uh, in the rest of the cast, speeds up the ability for a commander to make a decision or for a system to react to an adversary action. So for example, if you're getting shot at, the last thing you wanna do is figure out, hey, is my system need a reconfiguration to shoot back, right? You wanna be able to actually return fire or preempt some sort of adversary action through a, a system action itself. So um, I'll leave it there. I just kind of wanted to tie it back into the basics of you can automate, you should automate. And when um, if you're thinking about automation and you've done a task more than once, you're already there. Uh, so back out to you, John. Yes, 100%. Uh, and we, we've talked about this, like we are believers. And, and kind of in that note, Nick, so we're believers and, and, and we're doing our best to get everybody else to be believers. But Kind of in the old adage of uh, you know the journey of a thousand miles, the hardest is the first step. Uh, you've got what you've talked about here, which is Ansible as an automation platform. But there are others. Uh, you can you can just use pure Python if you want to for network automation. Uh, and there are some really cheap courses uh, that you can take to get after that. You could use something like Nornir, uh, which I believe is a newer platform uh, than Ansible, or, or even something like Terraform. So. As somebody's kind of getting in that uh, analysis paralysis mode, where they 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 believe what we're preaching right now, but but they're having a hard time getting started. What would you say to them? And and if you could start with gearing it towards the military, and then kind of branch off if you think that this is something universal or something for the military, I recommend this, and you know for industry, I recommend this. 
Yeah, I think, well, first of all, to address your first point, I think largely we, we make a mistake when we, when we try to pretend, and I want to say this in a respectful way because there are differences, but when we try to pretend that there's this enormous difference between military networks and commercial networks, or between tactical military networks and garrison military networks, or between enterprise networks and service provider networks, there's really not. The products are different. The line speeds are different. The amount of bandwidth is different. The people running the networks are different. They're different companies, um, different operating systems. Yes. But overall, the and the solutions are, are, of course, different as well. The topologies are different. But when we think about automation, every single one of those networks requires configuration management of some kind. Now, whether it's a board of people who sit in a room and look at spreadsheets or whether it's an automated process or a combination of both, that's just going to happen no matter what you are or what you're doing. That need that that has to be a thing. Now, when it relates to the military specifically, something I think is useful to keep in mind is just the overall skill set. And I think people in the military, especially like junior enlisted people, a lot of them are very bright for their age, especially compared to uh, some of their peers. But oftentimes they're given enough training to go and do a very specific job and to execute you know, against commander's intent. And sometimes when it comes to highly technical work, they're just like the rest of professional engineers. They need a lot of experience with something to get really great with it. So if you're looking to get something done quickly, my personal recommendation is to use something like Ansible. Uh, I compare this to something like Nornir or just custom Python because Nornir is very much a Python framework. Um, and it's, it's very generic in that you can do just about anything with it, even if it's not relating to logging into devices and making changes. Um, it's really just a, a general purpose concurrency framework that has some nice hooks for things like inventory and variable management. And I'm a huge fan. When I think about Ansible, it is really everything I just said about Nornir is also true for Ansible. I think the difference is that when you start writing code in Ansible, you're really just writing YAML syntax in a domain-specific language that Ansible can interpret as code. I know that sounds kind of meta, but long story short is I, I look at this as kind of a, you know, I, I don't remember. It's like a proverb that people put on motivational blogs. It's something like, you know, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And that's kind of how I think about Ansible and Nornir. With Ansible, you can get started pretty quickly. You can do pretty good config management, but there are some gaps. You can do things like software updates on your network devices. You can collect information. You can generate reports. You can make API calls. Um, very ex uh, extensive library of Ansible modules that you can manage everything from your network devices. Uh, you can spin up new uh, computing instances in AWS. You can manage uh, Cisco ACI architectures. All that stuff is easily supported from Ansible uh, without much code. The drawback, of course, is that people who have worked with Ansible for maybe six months or more, you tend to hit ceilings pretty quickly. Even things like doing like nested iteration, like in a programming language, a pair of for loops, that's actually kind of complicated in Ansible. But in Python, it's absolutely trivial. And this is where Nornir really starts to shine because once you start to hit those limitations with Ansible, it might make sense to move to something a little more advanced and a little more flexible because you've already made the investment to do automation. And by the time you've used Ansible for a year, you've seen the value to the organization as well, or at least you should have. The question then becomes, how do we exploit this further and get more value by doing more advanced things and saving more time? Uh, something like Nornir might be the right approach.
uh, you can, you know, with Nornir, you can consume existing Ansible inventories. Um, I think semantically, there's a lot of similarities between Ansible and Nornir, although the syntax, of course, is quite different. Assuming you can make that transition, then Nornir gives you the flexibility to do a lot more and generally using less code. So again, that was kind of the path I took, and I'm glad that I took that because by working with Ansible so much and seeing the limitations of it, and again, I'm not trying to dog Ansible. I still, to this day, remain a huge fan and a huge proponent. Um, but there are some things that are just hard to do where 10 lines of Ansible can be two lines of Python, and it's just harder to deal with. Hitting those limitations makes you appreciate having alternative frameworks available like Nornir to solve those other cases. So again, to summarize that whole kind of monologue, uh, starting with Ansible would be, in my opinion, a good choice for military units, especially at the battalion level, that are looking to do some kind of automation without necessarily needing to train up an army of professional coders. And perhaps in that battalion's future or at higher echelons where uh, more senior talent is available. You might even have contractors or government civilians who are professional programmers available to help using more advanced tooling like custom Python scripts or Nornir might be the better approach. So Nick, can I chime in just to add a little bit onto that? Because I, I get this question a lot. I, I do a decent amount of mentoring of Marines who are getting out and want you know advice on what things to learn. If you are out there listening to this cast right now and thinking to yourself, I want to get started with automation, I'm going to give you a depressing statement. It doesn't matter what tool you use to learn on. Go pick anything. You can do Salt, Puppet, Chef, Ansible, doesn't matter, right? Nornir is right on that list. The key thing is just go learn something and then go learn something else and you'll have some form of like comparative look at the world and it's always it's like speaking languages right if you if you move to europe and you only speak english you're going to have a bad day but if you speak you know french and german and spanish and italian you're going to be able to go anywhere and pretty much do anything inside of all of europe and that, that's that's my really crappy metaphor for this but just get started with something and figure out how those tools work and then go learn a different tool and they, they each have their own specific strengths and weaknesses across the board and to kyle's point I really, I found, you know, I, I understood when I was studying routing protocols, when I was just focused on one protocol, I kind of learned, but so much. Uh, but when I kind of brought in the other protocols, was able to compare and contrast, I was able to really appreciate the kind of differences and nuance. And uh, I started my automation joint journey exactly the way, way uh, Kyle mentions, uh, by learning one tool, trying it, and then going right to another tool just to kind of see some of the differences. Yeah, I, I just want to hit on one uh, thing again, uh, right? And I guess this is the uh, the proverbial knife hand moment in the conversation, right? So, you know, I completely agree with what Kyle said. Uh, and I think it's uh, back to what Nick originally said, which is know what your problem is. What problem are you trying to solve, right? Then have a bias for intelligent action. Go do a little research and figure out, hey, is this, is this language good? I mean, by, by research, I mean like a five-minute Google search, right? Is this language good for automating these things? And then do exactly what Kyle said, which is just pick one and go. Yep, absolutely. And, and makes perfect sense. I do want to kind of hit on a little bit more uh, one of the things Nick mentioned. So when, when I ask about kind of civilian versus military, and we, we kind of got the like, hey, you know, let's take a minute and like pr try to pretend like uh, there's not really a difference here, which which we know a packet's a packet's a packet, right? Uh, I, I think was the the general gist there. Uh, so one of the things I wanted to know is if you had a different recommendation, uh, tactical versus garrison. I have a feeling I know the direction we're going to go with this. Uh, but one of the things that you know 
most listeners may not know is some of our tier three admins uh, were in high school 18 months uh, previously, where I think that is, is a somewhat unique thing about the military and probably something, especially when we're talking about automation, that that ought to be at least factored in. Yeah, I think for the most part, you know, tactical and garrison networks are pretty comparable. The biggest difference on those, I think, is just the capability of the networks. You know, as we know, garrison networks are generally more stable, higher bandwidth. You know, they cater to more of an uh, more of an enterprise type environment where people come in, they they sit at desks, they do that kind of work. Versus in tactical networks, you've got people in the field. There's a lot of motion. The networks are much less stable. You know, they're uh, predominantly wireless between SATCOM and line of sight technologies versus enterprise networks, which are probably mostly wired based, you know, fiber across the country and such. In terms of tooling though, uh, I think I stand by my original argument that the tooling that you choose is going to be the same, or let me put it this way. You know, if you use Ansible in Garrison, it's probably going to be just as effective and tactical. The only difference of course, is that you're solving completely different problems, you know, updating your, you know, fine-tuning a quality of service policy in an enterprise network is going to have a lot less impact than when you're doing it over a 256 kilobits per second SATCOM link. So I think the problem set that gets solved is going to be a bit different. And the tooling is probably going, you know, the, the sophistication of the code that is written is probably going to be lower in the tactical environment, just given the people that are doing it, which is understandable. Um, but again, you know, Rich and Kyle both said this too. In, in April of 17, when I had this problem to solve, like like Rich said, bias for action, I did a five-minute Google check like he suggested, and I stumbled on Ansible as what appeared to be the best solution for me at the time. So I picked it. I went with it. And the next time I had a problem to solve, I asked myself a question again, but I've already made a time and effort investment into Ansible. And I, I even made a monetary investment by buying some training on it. So at that point, I was like, well, I'm still biased towards Ansible because I've already learned how to use it. And then I kept using it again and again and again for a year uh, to solve all my problems. And it worked pretty well for all those things. So long as you pick one thing and you get good enough to the point where you can solve real operational problems, what you actually choose is less relevant. I don't think I started even seriously considering other tools until, or until you know, I'd say about nine months after I started messing with Ansible in early 2019. Before that, I was pretty much only doing Ansible for my customer because it was frankly all I needed. So, Yeah, and Nick, there was something else there too. You mentioned in the beginning of that story about Googling because you could go with like Chef or Puppet, but Chef has a significantly larger market share. And so you're going to find more Stack Overflow articles and blog posts written about that technology. And if you go with the non-DSL specific one, so Ansible or Salt, Ansible just has significantly broader adoption across the entire tech spectrum. And so you will just find more stuff about Ansible. Like Kyle's very, very biased opinion, I would start with Ansible no matter what you do, just because you're going to find way more help about that and more people who are in the same boat as you and then dive into something more nuanced once you understand that. But the, you know, don't underestimate the ability to go to Stack Overflow and find the exact answer to your problem that was posted in the spring of 2015. Yeah, that, that was a huge, that was one of those hidden benefits that I didn't think of at the time that became readily apparent because I could ask, you know, I could easily Google a very specific issue and then in the back of my head, I'm like, yeah, right. No one's ever seen this problem before. And then there's like 30 answers. And that was a, that was a very nice, unexpected uh, surprise that I noticed with Ansible. When I started to do things like Nornir, which is still pretty new. And um, again, I remain a huge fan and I have a good relationship with the creators. Uh, 
there's, you know, you go on Google and search, you know, the best thing you'll get is some issue history on the, on the core repository. And there's just a lot more kind of discovery and trial and error you have to do as you're trying to learn it. Um, I still think it's a great tool. And from a technical perspective, I dare say it's superior to Ansible in many ways, in probably most ways. Um, but like you said, the supportability aspect, especially from a military perspective, tends to be one of the largest and most significant considerations when choosing. And another one of those considerations that we, you know, need to, we haven't really, you, you kind of alluded to it a little bit, we haven't completely talked about it, is coding. Because uh, I think that tends to be a big barrier. I know it is, uh, for me personally, I am, I'm dreadful at the coding. So how much do you think, as, as we look to do this, how, how much do we need to have the Marines concentrate on coding? Or would you recommend they kind of get started and, like you've mentioned before, like solve your problems, and then when you can't solve your problem, then go out and find that thing? Or do you think this is one of those things where they just need to start prepping now because it's inevitable? Yeah, I mean, the way I look at this is there's, there's kind of a three-step process when you're developing any coding project. Number one, make it work. Number two, make it right. And number three, make it fast. And even at my level, with the with the amount of work that I do and the amount of customer engagements that I have and the tools that I write, rarely do I even make it to the third step. You know, I'll write something quick. You know, for example, I'm working on a very complex Ansible project right now and I've been working on it all weekend. Um, right now I'm at step one. I'm just trying to get it to work. I will absolutely go back and make it right. I'll add in the comments. I'll add in the testing. I'll make it look like a professional project. Um, it still takes 24 minutes to run. Now, if I wanted to be really fancy, I probably could speed that up. I could probably cut it in half. But for my use case, it doesn't really matter. I'm provisioning a, a cloud architecture. Um, there's not going to be any business disadvantage. There's not going to be any money lost. There's no shareholder risk because my script takes 12 extra minutes to run. That's just not a real thing. Um, sometimes that speed really does matter, though. You know, I work with other people who have to manage tens of thousands of instances, and the difference between an instance taking five seconds to run versus three is a 40% improvement. That's enormous to them. So you have to ask yourself, if you're in the field and you're trying to solve a problem, you make it work first, and then you make it right, and then you make it fast. But you only continue to the next step if it's really needed. Now, I generally recommend that people, after getting something to work, that they go and make it right to the best of their knowledge. However, in a tactical environment, it's unlikely that the people who are just trying to solve problems are going to know the proper software design patterns or the, the exact right way to build a CI/CD DevOps pipeline. That's just not likely. So my recommendation would be if you've solved the problem and your code is sufficiently readable and maintainable by your peers, not again, I, I said your peers, not people who are way more skilled than you, but if I'm a corporal and I write some code and this other corporal or sergeant can read it and understand it and manipulate it, and we're the only people who are managing the system, then it's, in my opinion, it's a go. Use it. Heck yeah. So yeah, that's my that's my take. I'll also add to that and say, I think that there is this um, like way over indexing on saying that we have to train everybody to be software developers or, or like quote unquote programmers. And you don't need to be a programmer to understand how something like Ansible works. Like 
you know, to understand what a line of code looks like does not make you a programmer, right? You don't need to go to college for four years or have a bunch of certifications or whatever to be a programmer to, in order to do configuration management. Like if you've ever read an Excel spreadsheet or like played an average video game, you are able to probably write some, some code that will work. And to Nick's point, you just got to make it work. And I can't stress enough how it, like Nick said, your peers are the only ones that matter. Like I've seen lots of code that I've looked at and went, man, this is ugly, but it works. And so I don't hate it. In fact, I love the hell out of it because it works. And I mean, you know, if you have time to make it right, cool, do that. That'll make you better at doing it the next time. But, you know, rounds coming down range, you need to make something work, just make it work. It doesn't matter if it's efficient. It doesn't matter if it's fast. It just has to do the thing you want it to do. And congratulations, you are now a, an automation expert and everyone's going to come to you. So good luck. Yeah, to, to make one point here, I think... I think what I'm hearing both Nick and, and Kyle say is like results matter, right? Um, and, and deliver the value you need to deliver now because your organization requires it. So, um, you know, and uh, to, to Kyle's point, I'm a huge, huge fan. And I think the Marine Corps lends itself as an organization to this type of uh, motto or philosophy that I'm about to mention, which is become a practitioner first before you become a professional, right? By all means, do you wanna to strive to become a professional and have the training and the experience and the background, right? Yeah, to do what you need to do to, to um, you know, make your value that you're delivering or your product or your service the best you can to next point. Um, but deliver that value first and don't be afraid to just be the person that tackles the problem and delivers the upfront value. Uh, sorry, John, back to you. And no problem at all. Uh, so, uh, Nick, I got a part two for that previous question. So, you know, I ask you, hey, what about coding? And I think we hit that pretty well. Um, and then the next kind of question I have is, and this is kind of a little bit more Ansible specific, but uh, there's going to be somebody writing your YAML files. And I think very realistic that it could be a Lance Corporal doing that. Uh, you know, because this is so easy, a host John can do it. Um, but the question is, you're pretty soon, you know, the, the rage out there is API, API, API. Do you think that same Lance Corporal that's writing my YAML files is going to also work those API integrations? Or is that where I reach out for the experts? Maybe that's a contractor. Maybe that's somebody with a little bit more uh, time in the game. I think the reality is that it is going to be someone in the 06 shop, you know, in the Marine Corps specifically, it's going to be the equivalent of your, you know, your 0651 data communication specialist. I think in the, in the army, it's what a 25 Bravo, I think. Uh, but it's going to be that person that probably gets stuck with it because, you know, just like, you know, just like the non-communications people in the military, like, oh, it, it, it runs on electricity and it has a screen, it's calm. You know, and you know, yep, once it, that's, once, the, that's it. Yeah. Once it shows, and then once it gets into calm, they're like, okay, well, is it a phone? No. Is it a radio? No. Is it, does it look like it might be a computer? Yes. 0651. So something like that is probably going to mean that those are going to be the people dealing with it. My personal opinion is that having this be a specialty MOS is probably worth considering for the military. And what I envision this MOS as being would be, you know, a little bit of data communications. Of course, you have to understand what you're automating. That's important. But there also has to be a very heavy focus on actually learning the, the fundamentals of programming and being able to do the automation work. And whatever schoolhouse ends up teaching this, 
is going to have to stay on top of the market um, to give people exposure to the things that are actually being used. And, you know, you know, maybe Rich can talk about the difficulties in actually doing that, you know, how, how often these course curricula have to turn over. I don't know how hard that is. I imagine it's quite difficult. Um, but I would, you know, we, as a, as a military in general, we would have to find a solution to that problem to give people the most updated tools and understanding. Uh, I think that would be the best case for success because, you know, I think back to my own workups, both before Haiti and Afghanistan and just how busy we were with, the day-to-day, you know, getting equipment ready, training, uh, all the other things we had to do, trying to teach people automation during that period so they could use it overseas just seems like a, like comically impossible. So I'd be interested to to understand, you know, other people's opinions, you know, from the military side on what, what you all think about how this should be divided up. You know, my opinion is that having a separate MOS would kind of make sense. Um, I realize that splitting MOSs is generally expensive and difficult for the military to do. So I, I say that a little bit tongue in cheek. Um, but again, I've been I've been away from the military for almost a decade now, so I'm not sure if things have changed. Yeah, so I could I could pick up there first and then turn over to John here. So so Nick, to kind of you know fast forward you you know uh, you know kind of a, a mini little short of a decade, right? Is the there are there is what's known as the 0673. Um, cyber application developer MOS. Now it's just getting off the ground, right? There are folks right now that are going through schools or just have uh, having finished the schools where they're trying to teach them a little bit of the basics of, of computer science. And I talk a little bit t- towards what I mentioned earlier, which is not being so much the professional as the practitioner, right? So they're they're getting up to speed on how to how to script, how to write code, how to de- put that code into a source code repository and then deploy it via a pipeline given, you know, the end state of that pipeline, whether it's on-prem, cloud, whatever it is, right? So, um, uh, but to answer your question directly, um, John actually was at the heart of how the Marine Corps was trying to solve this problem, right? So like, to your point, it's really hard and expensive to get policy and bureaucracy changes to create MOSs and then change programs of instructions or what we call POI at schoolhouses for, for foundational training, right? So John was part of what we call the communications training center initiatives, which were post that initial training for the MOS producing school. How do we keep people relevant and we just get them back for the equivalent of what we would call certifications or, you know, if you're in cybersecurity, like a SANS course on malware reversing, if you're like a malware uh, professional, right? So um, uh, to speak directly to your question, I think, um, you know, the Marine Corps has moved towards a model where, we can get people some additional training outside of their foundational training courses, but I kind of agree with you that when you look at like just educational institutions across, you know, I'll, I'll stay specific to the United States just to be very, you know, to stay in my own lane. Um, you know, places like Harvard and Stanford, and people have heard me say this before on the cast, have made it a foundational requirement that in year one and year two, you go through computer science 101. So you understand the capabilities uh, that you can apply to a, a business problem or a public service problem if you're going through like a, you know, a public service administration type um, degree set. Um, but my point there is, I completely agree with you that we have to have a faster flywheel on staying in tune with what the industry standard is for whatever the solution is. But I also don't think that... Um, 
outside of giving people the foundational ability to, to do scripting, right? They might not be, they might not need a computer science degree, but knowing how to string together an algorithm or a script and knowing how to, you know, create classes and val uh, variables, as you mentioned earlier in the cast, so that you can actually automate the problem you're trying to solve. I think that's super, super critical. But John and, and Kyle, does that make sense? And John, does that relate to like your experience as, as a lead at a communications training center? Over. Yeah, I think it definitely does. So to catch uh, Nick up real quick, uh, we actually did fracture the MOS since you left. So there are there aren't fifty uh, ones anymore. There are now o six three x and o six seven x, which correspond to like network admin, server admin, server slash virtualization admin. So we have made a little bit of a change uh, since you left. Uh, but I think Rich, to kind of get at what you're talking about. In, in addition to those changes, you know, we have the cloud here now and some other functions. So I think the problem or the challenge that we're going to have is the the specialists that Nick talk about uh, that are able to write the code where we've hit our limit or work the API integrations because that's a little bit more complicated. Those 0673s, they're going to want those guys to write code that does applications. They're going to want, the, you know, the, the warheads on foreheads applications guys that I'm, I'm pretty sure they're going to want them to do that. And it's probably going to be a real fight to get the institution to want to give those highly technical coders up for automating tasks we're doing by hand vice trying to build new capabilities. And I, and I don't think there's really a easy or right answer to that question. And it'll probably be one we uh, struggle with for a while. Yeah. I think, I think Rich's point is spot on just to quickly wrap this up, you know, on this topic is, you know, so focusing on being a practitioner and solving the problem at hand is is paramount. In fact, it might be the only thing that matters at this point. You know, giving people the basic knowledge on what programming is and what it can solve is probably the most important thing with, you know, specific tools and techniques being a distant second. Awesome. Thanks for the quick, uh, concise answer there. So, and, and uh, we're, we're getting pretty close to time. So I, I will finish on the final question, which is, you know, I always like to make make the hardest one the last one. Um, do you think there is a case against automation? Is there something we're missing or is, is there another side of the coin to where, you know, like, hey, 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 guys, really cool cast and all, but I don't really think this is a good idea. Yeah, I, I think it just comes down to, it, here's how I look at it, to use a simple military example. Um, I like to think about automation. It's like having an artillery or, or aerial bombardment where you can hit a target and it can be extremely effective and you can win a battle in 10 minutes or you can miss and you can have a, a blue on blue incident or something terrible. Uh, and that is the complete opposite effect. You can lose the battle in 10 minutes, not to mention the, you know, all the things that are going to happen to uh, not, not only the people that were injured, but the people who authorized it, they're going to be in a, having a bad day. So when you think about it, it allows you to cause damage at scale. So we've seen, you know, in the news, um, I didn't read the postmortem on it yet, but US East One, one of the biggest AWS data centers or regions, I should say, uh, was down a few weeks ago. I remember, I think it was last year, there was a big AWS S3. That's the storage service. There was a big outage due to some automation flub. These things happen. Uh, you know, even in the best organizations, they happen and the results are spectacularly bad when it does go wrong. Um, I've had this happen even in my own environment. We were standing up a new site. I was automating a interface configuration, 
but I was changing the interface to which I was connected to the device. So I was basically like, you know, I was blowing up the bridge as I was walking across it. So it didn't work out. I lost connectivity to the device. Within five seconds, I had my, I was face palming myself. Um, I called the guy on site. He managed to console in and fix it for me. But, you know, that was just an example of what if I had done that at all of our sites? Fortunately, it was only that one. But what if I had done it everywhere? I had the foresight to limit my changes to that one site as a test. But had I not put that little switch on the, on the run command, it would have been lights out. And I probably would have gotten fired, rightfully so. So it's important to consider the scope of your changes. And this is why we talk about, you know, this is where a lot of the buzzwords around DevOps, continuous integration, continuous deployment. Because the whole idea of CICD is that when changes are made and pushed into our repository, those changes are extensively tested and then automatically deployed to minimize those risks. So in the military, we have something called operational risk management or ORM. It's just a fancy way of de-risking a process, uh, trying to measure the severity of an incident compared to the likelihood that it would occur. And with automation, the likelihood is generally low, but the severity is very high. So the more we can drive down the, the likelihood of an automation mistake, the better it is. And that's exactly what CICD does for us. So the fact that all these new buzzwords came up at the same time, it's not really coincidental because they are very much mutually supporting and they work best when they're deployed together. Um, so my advice to those looking to do automation in a scalable way, make sure you have very extensive test processes to ensure that the changes you're about to push are actually going to work and not cause some you know, catastrophic error across your entire network. Um, you know, it's bad enough when, you know, as a battalion commo, you have one site that goes down, you know, the OPSO and the battalion commander are going to be on you in a very bad way. Now imagine that it's the entire battalion that's lost connectivity because you, you know, you screwed up all the sites at the same time. How do you even react to that? You know, if you have a, if you have really smart guys that can respond to an issue quickly, uh, well, now you have six issues at the same time. Now you're just, you know, you're, you're in a rough spot now. So you always want to consider those impacts. And again, testing is extremely important here. Yeah, I, I could not agree more. I think that the common argument against automation is the old meme, which is like automate all the things problem is now everywhere. And, and that is a super important piece to understand what is the blast radius of the thing that you are about to do. So I work in cloud architecture all day, every day. And this is what I tell every one of my customers. It's like, Hey, you should probably deploy this in more than one region. And you should probably have, you know, separate projects that you put these things in and separate VPCs and maybe even, you know, entirely separate accounts that you deploy some of the stuff in, because I want to limit your blast radius. I mean, automation is great. If I break it everywhere, I can usually fix it everywhere in the equal amount of time in the cloud, but I just don't want to ever break it everywhere. I'm perfectly happy to break it in one place. I think that we should all build resilient infrastructures. And, and you know, when we're talking about automation of networks, it's all about, you know, multiple physical connections and the ability to reroute on demand when things go bad. But just be super duper careful about the the star dot star scenario i have uh stories that i've shared on here before of like taking down the entire classified email network in afghanistan and, and things like that uh, from time to time because we automated things uh in ways that shouldn't have been so just be super careful about your blast radius on your changes have a dev environment have a test environment and look at stuff there first rich you have any final thoughts for us my my only final thoughts on the cast and I, one awesome conversation, right? I'll say that up front. Nick, so great to reconnect with you uh, and to do it across uh, John and Kyle, who are our two Marines that I, I just 
utmost had had the utmost respect uh, uh, on the daily for. But uh, what I'd like to leave the group with is know what problem you're trying to solve. Take steps that include a bias for intelligent action, and then just become a practitioner and do the do. That's what I got, John. Awesome. And Kyle, do you have any hot takes for us before we uh, wrap up? You know what I'm going to do, guys? Uh, Nick gave me my hot take of the day. So I'm going to give full credit to Nick because he said something that I've never heard put so succinctly and so wonderfully uh, earlier on, where he said, the choice of automation is not a question of scale. It's a question of certainty. And that is just the most fun thing I've heard in a long time and most accurate thing I've heard in a long time. You want to do it right? You should automate that thing, man. I just never trust human beings. I don't trust keyboards. I don't trust people's fingers. I trust code. I trust it real well. So hot take today, uh, make your automations happen because you want to be certain that the actions will happen. So thank you, Nick, for the hot take. Yeah, my pleasure. Awesome. Thanks. And, uh, and the other thing is we're, we're going we're gonna to break from normal a second time here. Uh, and before I kick it over to Nick to give him a chance to plug uh, whatever he'd like to plug, I would like to put in a plug for Nick uh, because, you know, sometimes we, we record these casts and we talk about automation and sometimes it's difficult to understand the exact, you know, what do they mean and how exactly does this look or can I take another minute and digest it and see what it really looks like. And Nick actually just did a project where and you, you talked you alluded to a little bit the the 24 minutes or whatever but nick kind of did a soup to nuts automate a bunch of things um and i think that is a great example kind of showing you what you have the possibility of doing um nick would you mind kind of giving us the specifics on that one and where people can find it and then if, if you want to plug anything else yeah, I mean, I've done a whole lot of different automation work. Um, you know, one that I think is, you know, uh, one that came recently and it only took me a, a weekend to do. I thought was kind of interesting is um, I was tracking some of the election polling uh, for the for the U.S. general that just happened last month. And what I did was I wanted to basically just create a simple website that would just show you the different polls for the different races in different states. Uh, I wanted it to be updated very regularly. So I did it four times a day, every six hours. I also had a personal goal of absolute cost minimization because this is my own money. I'm not, I didn't get paid for this. There were no ads. Um, it only came as an expense to me. So I wanted it to be uh, basically I, I was willing to spend money, but only enough to solve the problem. So I managed to build uh, a serverless environment using AWS Lambda to deploy a static website to S3, um, a little bit of Python scripts, you know, made some uh, HTTP requests to um, a polling website to pull down some of their data, uh, redisplayed it with some simple color codes, um, added in some continuous deployment, and there we go. Every six hours, it automatically updates. Uh, and that's, you know, I have a, a vid I have a YouTube video that explains how all that was built. I have a whole bunch of other videos where I explain a bunch of other complex projects, you know, how I automated the delivery of, of blog posts, how I automated the publishing of my second book using a code project. So I've, I've solved a lot of kind of strange problems with code because I find that to be really, uh, really fun, quite frankly. So um, a lot of that stuff's on my, on my YouTube channel, my website for those who want to learn more. Awesome. Thanks so much. And again, Nick, thanks so much for joining us. And dear listeners, thank you for joining us. You can connect with us on social media at Twitter. The username is USMC underscore T-F-P-H-O-E-N-I-X. That's USMC underscore Task Force Phoenix. Uh, Nick, thanks again so much for coming on. And everyone else, have a great weekend. <laughs>